Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to the wonderful book of Philippians, which we are kind of just getting our feet wet in, and yet it is one of those books that there's no waiting in. You end up in the deep end of the pool right away, and that is a, really a great blessing to see that. Last week, we reviewed the background material from our first message in Philippians, and then we started into that formal discussion of our first section. And that section, which we began, is covering verses 1 through 11. And our title for that section was, A Glorious Gospel Prayer. A Glorious Gospel Prayer. And our first point was the introduction to prayer in verses 1 to 2. And in that introduction, we recognize the importance of the audience, the, the saints who also included the overseers and deacons or the holy ones, how important that was as the audience brought forth the impact of the main themes of joy and unity. And that's why the inclusion of the overseers and deacons was so vital. Because they are the ones charged with the leadership of the church. So to bring forth these matters of joy and of unity, these requirements rest primarily upon the leadership. To continue to encourage the saints, the holy ones, in that endeavor. We also discussed the reference to the Father and Son in verse 2. Jesus also being mentioned twice in these first two verses. Stunning to realize that in the first 11 verses of Philippians, the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned seven times. Now that is a lot in a very short beginning, to be formally mentioned by name seven times. Not just pronoun references, but direct references to Christ. As we looked at our second point last week, which we titled, A Prayer of Participation, in, in verses 3 through 6, we noted in that section the, the repeat usage of that word, all. Four times being used there to show the inclusiveness that was going on. And that was the idea that was behind our point, a prayer of participation. That it was all inclusive of, of all the holy ones, of all the overseers, of all the deacons. The church body as a whole was continually brought in to this prayer that Paul began in verse 3. We also discussed a specific type of prayer that he began with, namely that of thanksgiving. And Paul's thanksgiving was because of his memory of these holy ones, these holy ones, these elders, these deacons. And Paul's then in verses 4 to 5, he continued to expound on that thankfulness and we saw that it was a prayer of joy and also a specific prayer of supplication. We saw that unique word for prayer in verse 4 used, used twice, the same word, and it was a very unique type of prayer. It was that prayer of asking, or again, what we often speak of as a prayer of supplication. So Paul was asking on behalf of God and focusing on this idea of participation in it. And he brought that idea of participation full span in verse 6 because it was their, or verse 5 rather, because it was their participation or their fellowship in the gospel. That which they had always done. That was the focus of why Paul had so much joy in his prayer. Because of the work which they had done from the beginning to proclaim Christ and to be about what Paul was about. 
we're going to see throughout the focus of, of Paul's writings, and we do over and over, but particularly in Philippians, the emphasis on the gospel is paramount. And, and he will highlight that in a very unique way as we move into the second section of this tonight. Then in verse 6, as we concluded our second point in a prayer of participation, was another reason for his prayer of joy, and that was his confidence in Christ's perfecting work of salvation. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, there is a structure there that we're going to see repeated again as we continue on in that text tonight in the following verses. So let's read our text again just to remind ourselves of the whole context in verses 1 to 11, and then we'll dive back in and start to discuss what lies ahead. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we continue in this and, and we continue past our second point of our message from last week, we continue on in a glorious gospel prayer, and we could call it a glorious gospel prayer part two for our title for the message this evening. And as we looked at those first two points, now we come to our third point in verse 7. And I've titled that, A Prayer of Passion. A Prayer of Passion, in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, Paul justifies his reason for his heartfelt unity. He begins by saying, For it is only right. That word right is uh, a word that is a legal term. It means that which is just, that which is upright, that which is righteous. When we think of the word right in a legal sense, that word refers to that which is law-abiding or that which would honor the, the laws of the land. When we think of it spiritually, as in this context, it references that which relates to God's righteousness. So as Paul says it is only right, what he is saying is it is only right in the eyes of God. 
Were God here today, he would recognize that my prayer of joy, my prayer for you, this prayer of thanksgiving, this petition of supplication for all y'all is one which is right in his eyes and honoring. So Paul says that his response of prayer is, is not just from a human perspective, but it is also from a divine perspective. That his prayer is that which represents God's righteous perspective. He continues in verse 7, It is only right for me to feel this way. Now that word feel is an interesting word. If we go back and look at most of our older translations, that word is translated as think. As think instead of feel. And that comes because it is a mental assessment of thought that is bringing a feeling. The feeling really and that translation for feeling is generated based on what we see in verse 8. But the idea of thought and mental assessment is vital in this understanding. And it is really this combination of this first indication of being Christ-minded or as we said there in verse 7, right or righteous, to have this thought about you that there is an element of unity that he's bringing forward. He says it's a Christ-like, it's a God-honoring thought that I have about you all. He is showing here the first indications of the theme of unity. That what he is bringing forth is in the same accord with what God would bring forth. So that there is this idea of how what Paul brings as a matter of unity is that which they also should understand. Paul's further justification for this is their mutual thoughts of one for another as he has them in his heart, in verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. We all, we all understand what he's saying when he talks about having you in my heart. We have probably, most of us, all said at one point or another in our lives, if not often, that I love you with all my heart. This is the same expression that Paul is bringing forward when he says he has them in his heart. The heart being a reference here to the entire body, that this is a, an overarching love that he has. He has them in his heart, and thus is the reason that he feels this way about him. His heart attitude is our first formal expression of this third point, the prayer of passion. He has great passion for them. He has them in his heart because he is thinking the things of God in a unifying way regarding this church. That passionate heart then is because of their participation with him. That they have been with him in all that he is going through. They're participating in both his imprisonments and his defense. These two words in the Greek are connected. As we would expect, imprisonment or bonds doesn't mean necessarily the same thing as shackles, but there was something that was holding him. Then the defense would have been, it's the word that we see in uh, the Greek word is apologia, which we know as apologetics. It is, it is his defense. So it is likely a reference to his 
first trial before Caesar as he talks about his imprisonment and his defense that he is referencing here. And he says that you are with me in that. Well, how were they with him? How were the Philippians with Paul in his defense and apology? Were they there? No, they were not. They are hundreds of miles away from where Paul is imprisoned in Rome. What he is saying is that they are with him in a heart attitude that he just reflects. We know that's the case because of the next term in verse 7. You're with me in my imprisonment and defense, and you're with me in my confirmation of the gospel. How do those two go together? How do an individual's defense and imprisonment and confirmation of the gospel go together? Well, they go together in the fact that Paul is stating something very, very emphatically here. He is saying for us that the most important thing in his life is the gospel. These seem like unlikely terms to combine, but they are not. Because Paul is saying that you have stood with me as I have been imprisoned because you have continued to proclaim the gospel from the very beginning. In fact, he just told us in the previous verses, you have continued to proclaim the gospel. And I too am confirming the gospel even in my imprisonment. And my imprisonment and my defense and my apologetic are not as important as the confirmation of the gospel. This is what must go forth. My life is of little account to me, he will later say to us. But what is of great account is the gospel. And I need to be unified with you in that. And so he brings this, this passionate prayer of the proclamation of the gospel. And then in verse 8, he further expresses this prayer of passion where he says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. For God is my witness. Now, as we are good Bereans and we understand that there is something that he's bringing forward there that ought to draw a little question to our mind. For God is my witness. Now, if we went ahead uh, a, a few books to the book of James, which uh, Lord willing in our morning service as we conclude Hebrews will be coming to, in James chapter 5 and verse 12, we read, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. But Paul, he's not just swearing by heaven or earth. He is saying, for God is my witness. The word witness is testimony. It is one who stands to bear account. So he is swearing by God. What about Verses like Matthew chapter 5 and verse 34. Is Paul in, in jeopardy of violating these verses like James 5, 12 and Matthew 5? Listen to uh, what the Lord tells us in Matthew 5 and verse 33 and forward. Again, Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, 
for it is the footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So here is a previous statement in the Old Covenant, in the law, and the Lord is replacing it. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Continues on in verse 37, but let your yes be yes or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So is Paul violating this scripture when he calls God to bear witness for God to be his testimony? Not at all. Because it is the conclusion of those verses that is the emphasis both in James and in Matthew. It is that we would be honorable with our words, that our yes would be yes and our no would be no. It's not that we are not to make any oath. If we were never to make an oath, then we would never into a contractual uh, arrangement. We would never get married, for that is the most sacred oath which one can take on this earth. No, the point is that we would honor that oath, that we would carry it forward, and that we would live lives in light of that oath that we had made. So as, as Paul makes the statement for God is my witness, he is saying this is of the ultimate truth and for my part, all that I can do and all that I can say will bring honor to this statement. This is a statement that is drawing attention to us to show us that there is an element of passion that is about to follow which is very big. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus whoa okay I mean I love you with all my heart I love you with all my heart and soul I love you more I love you the most Karen and I is a little back and forth I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus okay how much bigger can it get than that none because that's exactly what we see as the supreme representation of love. As married couples, isn't that it? Isn't that Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. The ultimate expression of love is as Christ loved. What an amazing picture. We miss a little piece here that is so incredible, and it's that word affection, affection. And I think there might be a footnote. There is indeed in the New American Standard. It says inward parts. That, that fails a little too. The, the literal translation of that word, great Greek word, I know you're going to want to all know it and memorize it and write it on your refrigerators, is splognon. What? Splognon, it means bowels. It means intestines and viscera. It is the mass in the internal core of the lower part of the human abdomen. That is the element from which love was specifically focused in the ancient world. Now, you college young men and women, you might not want to go tell that one you're kind of liking that you love them with all your bowels. Just saying, it might not have the same effect. But the fact is that this is a massive statement of love. In the ancient world, there was nothing stronger that can be made. So not only is this an affection of Christ Jesus, which is the maximum expression, but it is the love of the 
bowels of Christ Jesus. The body, the very gift of life itself that Paul bore witness how he longed for them. This is, this is that desire that, that we see in a man of God. There is never a time when you have the unbelievable and intense privilege of serving and ministering to a church that you don't think about that body and those individuals in it. I pray that the Lord returns and we all get to go to heaven together, but should he take us apart at any time, we will remember one another. Just today, um, I I had gotten done with work and I was kind of headed home and was waiting for Karen to finish dinner and was spinning through Facebook, and I saw there um, the 36th anniversary of Don and Robin Gilmore, one of the deacons at our church at Santa Clarita Baptist, And my mind just filled with all of the wonderful memories of this dear couple. Their their two sons and and that which I had loved them. Um, I I was only in the church a few months and and their youngest son worked for me uh, doing setup at the church and I had to fire him. The supreme expression of love, right? (sighs) Um, But it was amazing the way the Lord used it. He totally turned his life around. About a year later, he realized he'd, he'd been to college. He was totally goofing off, basically flunked out of college, was kind of wasting all of that. And God got a hold of that young man in the most amazing way. And I'll tell you what, he is a powerful witness for Christ right now. Married, uh, came through, graduated from the, the master's university. He'd basically blown his whole scholarship. So he had a few credits that he hadn't flunked in his first year. And then he turned it around and he, was, he had a year and a half of scholarship left. And he finished that year, took a full-time job at Costco, ended up in a managerial position so that he could finish his second year working full-time and schooling at the same time. And it's just, it's exciting. And his desire is to go and work with youth. His older brother went on to seminary. He and I counseled together. And, you know, you just, you always have that love and that longing. And that's how it should be. Because we are a body. We are a body. And those that have gone on, they they have been members of us. And when when they leave, it's difficult. And it's supposed to be difficult. They are parts of our body. But we know that God is the one that is directing in those cases, but we don't lose that longing. There is that internal love. And Paul is expressing this love as he's been separated and as he's been put in prison. And his desire is for this great church body. And so he expresses this incredible prayer of passion. And in between these two formal statements of prayer, in verses 3 to 6 and in verses 9 to 11, he brings out this strongly passionate proclamation of why he is praying well as as we think of that passionate prayer which is indeed this is verse 9 begins our fourth point and i've titled that fourth point a prayer of perseverance a prayer of perseverance 
And if you can figure out how to spell perseverance right the first time by hand, you got to give me the secret because it doesn't matter how many times I write it, I always mess it up. But a prayer of perseverance. Look at verse 9 with me. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul now prays using the most broad term for prayer. We've seen two terms already previously. Back at the beginning of verse 3, we saw the term for prayer called thanksgiving or praise, eucharisteo. We talked about that last week. And then we saw him talk about that type of prayer which was requesting or asking supplication. Now we just see his broad request for prayer, the word that is usually used for prayer in the Scripture. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. This is, this is typical Pauline language. You know, one of my favorite verses, uh, uh, you know, goes somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and, and Revelation 22-21. Um, but specifically, um, Ephesians 3-20, for to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, the old King James used to say, exceedingly abundantly. How big is that? It's massive. This is exactly that same phrase, that your love may abound Abound is it, I love this kind of language, this kind of excessive superlative use, because this is the way that I love to write, and this is the way that my professors in my THM and my doctoral program used to use cases of red pens to tear apart, because they'd say, you don't need to write all that. Abound was enough, but it's not enough for Paul. Paul says, I want you to abound more and more. I want, I want you to have this overflowing abundance of love what a glorious blessing they what did the lord say to us to his disciples and to us they will know you by your love we must have this abounding love you know as i was looking at facebook i i, I was brought to a clip which i'd seen I, I may have made mention to you so when i start telling stories twice you can you know do what i do to my dad you can hold up two fingers and i'll get it um but there was a clip on there that's been posted quite a long time ago, and it was of a pastor who took a, a very large church, uh, over 7,000 people, and he went into the church, and uh, it was the day the elders were, were going to announce him, and they all were in on this little scheme. He dressed up as a homeless guy and went to all of the church people, and he asked them for money, asked them for food, asked them for clothes, and of the what he figured was three or 4,000 people he was able to speak with directly in the hour and a half before the service, three of them responded. So then, and he came and he sat down in front, and one of the ushers told him that he needed to move to the back. And so he did, and the elders came up front, and they introduced, they were all excited to introduce their new pastor, and, you know, they introduced his name, and the church is clapping, and... Then this homeless guy stands up out of the back and walks down front, you know, and, and they get silent. <laughs> and, and as he takes the pulpit, you know, he explains what he's just done for any who he didn't get to talk with. And it says that there was weeping, there are many with their head bowed. And he quotes the text from Matthew where the Lord is speaking about um, you know, as you did it to the least of these when you gave a drink of water, when you provided clothing. 
And um, he goes, what I see in front of me is a building full of people. I don't see a church of Jesus Christ. I'm excited to know when you're ready to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And he dismisses them and closes the service till next week. Ooh, not showing much love there. We have to be careful too, don't we? It's so easy for us. We show love. I, I guarantee if anyone in this room came to anyone else in this room and asked for anything that was in their physical ability to give, they'd have it. They'd have it. But how about for the homeless guy? Of course we have to be wise, particularly in our day and age, but we have to have hearts of compassion. How many entertain angels without knowing it? We've got to have that love, and Paul is praying for them that their love would abound more and more. And notice, he then brings forth what protects them in their love, that they don't become foolish in it, that that love is with what? Real knowledge and discernment at the end of verse 9. Real knowledge and discernment. That we have wisdom. That our love is brought forth in wisdom. It doesn't mean that we open our door to everyone. We go look at 2 John and, and John warns the widow, not to open her door, not to be hospitable, because there are many false teachers and they ought not be welcomed into her home, for they could prey upon her. But that there would be an abounding love that came forth with this knowledge and discernment as wisdom is associated with it. Then in verse 10, he gives us the purpose of this ever-abounding love based on wisdom. And he says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Why do we need love abounding that is, that is sprinkled and seasoned with wisdom? It is so that we would approve the things that are excellent. So approve here, the word approve, it, we could also translate as distinguish, would be a very good translation here. The word the Greek word that this comes from is a word from mineralogy. It is a word that is often translated as test, doikiamadzo, and it, and it is used in the, in the assaying business, that is the, the determining the value and the purity of minerals, particularly gold, where they would take a portion of the gold that someone would bring in and they would expose it to, they would weigh it to get the exact weight, they would expose it to intense heat to melt it where the dross would float to the top, they would remove that dross and then weigh it again and that would be the assayed weight, the difference between the weight of the sample to the pure gold. That's what he's telling us here when, when he talks about in verse 10 that we would approve, that we would be able to determine, to distinguish, to be aware of the things that are excellent. We'll see one of the most glorious verses at the end of Philippians 4 that, that Tom mentioned in his service last weekend. I believe it's ver, verse 9 or 10. The Whatever is worthy, whatever is upright, whatever is righteous, think on these things. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. He's going to draw that together and use that as kind of a bookend for the whole body of the letter. 
But he is telling us to understand here in this component that we are to be able to determine the things are excellent. Why? So that we will be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. And all of a sudden, all of these purpose statements are stacking up. We're to have this abounding love with wisdom so that we can approve the things that are excellent so that we can be blameless and sincere. And, and we got thinking, wow, how am I going to do all of this? And when does it all happen? In the day of Christ Jesus. You remember we discussed that back previously from verse 6, the day of Christ Jesus. Different than the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being a term of wrath, the day of Christ Jesus being a day of reward for the believer. So that we would be sincere and blameless. 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 How far are we from blameless, beloved? If we look into the mirror and we understand the sin that we commit every day, the things that we've done today that have not been blameless before the Lord, where we have not thought of God first. Maybe we've not thought of God at all in a particular time or decision or process. We were thinking exclusively about ourselves. We all do it every day. And he's calling us here that we need to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. And and we begin to, to, to wobble a little bit at this point. And to think, how is this going to happen? How am I going to be sincere and blameless and and to have this discerning and approving with this abounding wisdom of love? Well, just when we might think that we were in trouble, Paul comes to the rescue with verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verses 9 and 10 reveal this very difficult task. No, I would say this impossible task from a fleshly perspective. But it's not being done in our flesh. It's being done through Christ Jesus. As he does what? Notice that word, having been filled. Past tense, something that happened beforehand. This is what happens with the filling of the Spirit of God at salvation. This is another reason why we know that there is no such thing as a second blessing as the Pentecostal theology would hold. Because this says right here, it's a past tense action that was done to completion, having been filled. It's also not our work. The, the, the passive form of that verb shows us that it's God that's doing it. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, And as if we wondered, well, where does it come from? Which comes through Jesus Christ. He is doing it. And and we go, oh, okay. So what do we do? Well, we understand what this means. We understand that it's not our work. We understand that God wants to do this through us. We understand that we fall short in this every day. There's no way when we get to the end of verse 10 that we can make this happen. But verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. 
Righteousness is something that is given to us, isn't it? This is, we've talked about it so often, and we, we use a lot of big words as we're going through Hebrews, but we've talked about the doctrine of imputation. That is the great exchange. Christ taking our sin and him giving us his alien righteousness. It is the fruit of righteousness that he has given to us, that we are seen as righteousness. This is the idea of positional sanctification. That God sees us as holy. God sees us as righteous. God sees us in the white robes of his son. Amazing. Amazing. And all of this to the glory and to the praise of God. This, this last point, this prayer of perseverance becomes like a rosebud. I used to grow roses in California and it was a little easier because the climate was drier it's difficult of course as many of you know who have tried here to grow the the big roses and you know I would I would look for the roses that have 50 and 60 petal counts to them and, and if you would fertilize them appropriately about four to six times a year I would get rosebuds that would be bigger than a softball and they'd start with this tiny little head just about the size of my thumb and it would grow and it would get to uh, uh, about as big around as a dollar and about an inch and a half long. And then it would start to open. And I had some roses that were variegated. One of my favorites were the red and yellow ones. And you would see the different striations of red and yellow as the rose would open. And as it would continue to go and over the days, more and more petals would expose themselves until you had this giant rose head that was there. That's exactly what this prayer of perseverance is like. It begins with this first bud of love, the love that abounds still more and more. It continues to flower to show that that love must be saturated with wisdom so that it can then move forward into the next level and it can approve the things that are excellent. And then that excellent bounds even still further in the sincere and blameless lives that the believers would have clear to the day where we would stand before Christ. And then all of this beautiful flower is the result of not our work, not fertilizing, not watering, not pruning. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It is the work of Him filling us up and all to the praise and glory of God. The beautiful statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith that the chief end of man is to glorify God. Here it is, beloved. So what we have to come back and ask ourselves, and, and the application is self-evident in these verses. How is my love? How am I expressing love to the world? How am I reaching out to my neighbor? How am I reaching out to the clerk in the market? How am I reaching out to everyone that I see in my workplace and living and speaking Christ? How is that love working out? How am I growing in my wisdom and discernment? How am I focusing myself in the word of God to allow it to illumine my love and to bring the wisdom that's required? 
How am I determining the things that are excellent? How am I setting my attentions and affections, the love of my very bowels, upon the things that are most important to Christ and not the things that are important to me? Not the things that are going to burn up like wood, hay, stubble, and straw in the last time. The relationships, the ministry to others, the proclamation of the gospel Because this is what it's all about. These are the things that are excellent. These are the things that stand the test of time to the day of Christ. Nothing else matters. You know, I have, we have the distinct privilege at, here at the end of October of being able to go back to Idaho and to see our parents. My dad now ha- having moved with his wife to Boise where Karen's mom lives. So in one trip we'll be able to see both sets of our, our, of our parents and, and Karen's mom's been fairly ill and my dad's not been doing great and we are grateful for all your prayers through that. But in addition to that, my brother uh, has moved to Boise. My brother, who I've been estranged with, and until uh, a few months ago, I hadn't written or spoken to, I hadn't spoken to physically in 15 years, um, had barely written to him, other than to receive a a berating of a response, and I'm going to see him in October. (laughs) I'm excited about it. Um, I'm a little scared. Um, I... (laughs) already kind of feel like, um, um, you know, the uh, Jacob, as, as he came back to Esau, you know, and, and saw his brother and, you know, fell on his neck and wept. And I, I hope we have that kind of reunion. But I have to realize that there's only one thing that matters. I still have to bring the gospel. I still have to live it out because in the end, it, it, uh, it's all that matters. And we all have those relationships. And they can't stop for anything. So this is what we have to judge ourselves by. Is God receiving the glory in all of these ways, in each of these little petals of this beautiful flower that unfolds for us? And if not, how do we change Because we have a God that is so loving and magnificent that he's not looking back and saying, oh, you know, today on Wednesday, September 13th, I brought you that softball underhand gospel presentation and you totally blew it. No, he's not thinking about that. If that happened, that's behind you. He's looking ahead to say, tomorrow, I'm going to give you another one. Will you be ready? Because that's the God that we serve. That is the God that is love, that exudes His glory and His joy to allow us, broken vessels, cracked and frail instruments, only fitted for use for dishonorable purposes, to carry forth this message, to be seen as righteous because we seek to do this, because we seek to grow. What a glorious privilege we have. May God be pleased to use us in a mighty way to look in the mirror tonight and to say, how can tomorrow be different from today? And how may my Savior and Lord be glorified to the utmost of my ability as I seek Him more?